Hello and welcome to Nightlight. We're going to continue in this study on prayer. And I, I just, uh, I'm just going to jump into it and pick up where we left off. I really don't want to be teachy. I guess what I'm trying to say is I wish we were all together in a room and we could just talk through these things. Um, but we'll do the best we can. Romans 8 verses 19 through 28. Let's just dive into this and just trust the Holy Spirit to take us where he wants us to go. I'm, I'm using, by the way, the, a great deal, not completely, but I'm using a great deal of the Passion Translation of the New Testament. Uh, like all translations, it's got its good points and its bad points, or its good points and its less good points. I don't think there's any totally bad translations except some of the modern goofy ones that are so clearly off track that they're not translations, they're just propaganda tools, but that's not my purpose to talk about translations. I just want you to understand my reason for using this particular translation. Uh, I, I could use the Phillips translation, I could use the Amplified, but this particular one grasps and communicates in clearest language that I have found some of the most important principles that I have always wanted to, to communicate about prayer. So I just want you to know that ahead of time. And I think it would be worth your investment to get your own copy of uh, this translation. Don't, don't read the internet uh, commentaries on it. There's all, you know, sadly, there's people out there who evidently have nothing to do with their time except to peruse whatever other Christians are doing and then call them heretics. That That's uh, all they do. So uh, this man uh, who did this translation is a respected translator with a, a, a proven track record, both linguistically, theologically, and in his character, and is uh, affirmed by uh, people of great, uh, erudition and godly uh, trustworthiness like Dr. Michael Brown. So you don't need to worry about whether you're getting some goofball translation. Anyway, Romans 8 verse 19 through 28, I'm convinced that any suffering in this present world is less than nothing when compared to the magnitude of glory that is about to be unveiled within us. The entire universe is standing on tiptoe. That's that's Philip's translation also. The whole universe is standing on tiptoe, yearning to see this unveiling of God's glorious sons and daughters. For against its will, the universe itself has had to endure the empty futility resulting from the consequences of human sin. That's a fascinating verse, isn't it? The universe uh, is unwilling, it's kind of odd isn't it, to speak of the universe as having a will, but against its will, the universe has had to endure the empty futility that has resulted from the consequences of human sin. Uh, the, the King James translates that verse, that God has willfully subjected all of creation to frustration or to futility. That's the second law of thermodynamics in physics. Everything is disintegrating unless it has more energy put into it that then regenerates it. And that's very much to the point of what we've been talking about. Everything left to itself will disintegrate. Uh, that makes it very difficult to uh, embrace some of the fairy tales put out by pseudoscience about the spontaneous generation of intelligent life out of nothing. Uh, there's no pr proof of any such thing in all of creation. Um, 
until we get to the subject of quantum physics. And let me just say a little bit ahead of time, I'm going to talk ab about quantum physics as it relates to prayer. That that Please don't let that sound daunting to you because I'm not trying to be unnecessarily confusing or use words that we're not used to, but quantum physics, the word quantum in Latin just means the smallest piece. A quantum of anything is the smallest form of it. So quantum physics, to use a very inept layman's terminology for any of you physicists who might be listening, quantum amounts of physical energy or the smallest forms of physical energy we know about. There's always stuff we don't know about, but all that we know about, these these portions of energy don't behave any, they don't behave at all like the old Newtonian physics that we've all grown up learning. Newton's concept of physics deals with what large objects do up against large objects. But, I mean, they're large in comparison to the quantum activity, which is so tiny it can't be hardly understood by most of us. Uh, but my point in, in mentioning that is all of creation is subject to confusion, frustration, is it's not working right. It's all chaotic. It's a mess. There's chaos and there's lagos. Lagos is the ordering factor of wisdom. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is the lagos of God, the word of God. And all creation is summed up and put right in him, by him, and for him, and through him. And so this verse that we just quoted from the Phillips, oh, excuse me, well it is almost like Phillips' translation of, uh, of the Passion of Romans 8, uh, is talking about what physicists have referred to as the second law of thermodynamics where everything has to have energy put back into it or it disintegrates. Anyway, we'll talk more about that in a bit. And it's not just creation, Paul says. We also, who have already experienced the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, are also groaning as we passionately long to experience our own full status as God's sons and daughters, including the transformation of our physical bodies. For this is the final hope and fulfillment of our salvation. And it's, it's hard for me not to stop and comment on every one of these verses, but I'm trying to get to the, the part about prayer. Say, so, okay, so, so far, Paul is talking about the frustration of the disintegrating physical world and how the whole creation is groaning toward God. The implication is the creation is groaning toward the Creator, crying out to be set free from the bondage of corruption that it was placed under against its will. So the universe longs to do what it was created to do, but it can't because of man's sin, which got everything off track. And we also, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, who have received the renewed life of the Spirit that put us back on track in the new birth, <laughs> we're also groaning. We're groaning because we, we long to be set free from this frustration we feel. Set free from the, the things that around us that just, I mean, it's not because of my age. I've been feeling this a long, long time. 
if if it's increasing in me, it's not because I'm getting older so much as it is. I mean, I'm sure that's part of it, but it's more that I'm just I'm homesick. I'm just homesick. I know I don't belong here in this system the way it is. I'm going down the road a few days ago and uh, turned on the, the uh, K-Love and and uh, they're singing, All I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. Take this world, but give me Jesus. And I just burst in tears. I mean, it was like it hit me right in the solar plexus like a fist. Uh, they just put in words exactly what I'm, I feel sometimes. All I know is I'm not home. I'm not home. Uh, I love my home. I love the city I live in. I love people. I love the planet, but I, I'm, why am I in such turmoil, groaning on the inside? Sometimes I can express it in articulate speech. Sometimes I can't express it in, even in tongues, I can't fully express it. And sometimes it can't even come out in language. It has to come out in another language like tears. You know, tears is a language that says more than uh, words can say. Laughter is too, for that matter. Anyway, that's another subject. Paul goes on to say here in Romans 8, but hope, he says, this is the final hope the transformation of our bodies. But hope means that we must trust and wait for what is still unseen. For why would we need to hope for something we already have? So, because our hope is set on what is yet to be seen, we patiently keep on waiting for its fulfillment. Yes, we do. In a similar way, the Holy Spirit takes hold of us in our human frailty and empowers us in our weakness. That's what I'm talking about. In the, in the midst of this sense of weakness and homesickness and frustration and debilitation and weariness and longing. and How many other words can I throw in? Uh, the Holy Spirit is in that. I know he's in it. I can feel him in it sometimes. Sometimes I don't feel it at all, but sometimes I do feel it. For at times, Paul says, we don't even know how to pray or know the best things to ask for. Now, let me stop here and comment on just that sentence. Paul seems to be expecting all of us to understand something, he understands that we are interconnected in a prayer symphony that is going on all the time, led by the Holy Spirit, conducted by the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's literally the word that's used in Matthew 18 when it talks about uh, where two or three are gathered together. The Holy Spirit is the conductor um, he's the orchestrator, the conductor. He he makes all of it work together in a symphony. And uh, remember that when you're lonely and you feel isolated and you feel nobody understands you and nobody's there with you. Uh, this this really is real. And uh, suffering Christians who have come through persecutions where they were locked away in solitary confinement or such things. They give testimony sometime of this sense they would have sometimes of being in a symphony. Uh, they were not alone and everything was working and coordinating together for their good and God's glory, which is a verse we're going to get to here in just a minute. But the Holy Spirit, uh, Paul uses a word here in Greek that I, I don't hear people, teachers comment on very often, but it's uh, the Passion Translation captures it. The Holy Spirit rises up within us to super intercede. In the Greek text, that word "hooper," super, "hooper erantugano," uh, it's super intercede. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit comes 
into our weakness, becomes the wind beneath our wings, lifts us to places we can't go on our own and actually feel like we're going the opposite, feel like we're plunging down. He comes in and, and super intercedes. What's he doing? I mean, why does the Holy Spirit have to intercede to God the Father in Jesus' name for us? What is all that about? And, and, and it's natural for us to, to think, well, it's got something to do with God needing to be uh, pleaded to on our behalf so that maybe God will do something for us if something like that. Well, no. That's, I mean, that's understandable why we think that, but that's not what this is talking about. Why would God need to be entreated or needed to be pleaded with to do what he came to earth in Jesus to, to do? And why would the Holy Spirit have to go into our weakness and brokenness and bring up in prayer that we can't even articulate uh, in order to lift it up to God? I mean, what does all that mean? Well, I'm going to try to untangle it the best I can. Uh, and that's why I haven't tried to formulate this in some kind of teaching. I really, I'm wrestling through it as I read through it. I'm, I'm wrestling through it with you. So let me see where we can go with it. The Holy Spirit is taking what is in us that we don't even know how to express, that is coming out of our brokenness and frustration because we live still in this unredeemed, broken system that is under frustration, put there by God on purpose. Why would God frustrate everything? Well, Paul tells you in another place, the whole creation was subjugated to frustration on purpose so that the whole creation could be delivered from it. That's too big a subject to get into. But God never purposely frustrates anything just just to be frustrating. I mean, a picture of it back in the garden is that he sends Adam and Eve out of the garden and puts a, a cherub, a flaming sword of the cherubim to guard the way back in so that Adam and Eve would not be able to have access to the original power that they were originally had. Why? Well, the text tells you. Because God didn't want them wielding creative power as if nothing bad had happened. He had to take away from them the power of wielding what he intended them to wield so that he might eventually bring them back to that power in the new creation. Okay, does that make sense? So we who have received the first fruits of the Spirit are back in the garden, so to speak. We're back in touch with that original creative energy Without frustration. I mean, this is one of the reasons for praying in other tongues is uh, to bypass the frustrations of ineptness and inabilities. You say, Clay, you just said sometimes even tongues can't fully express it. Well, that's my opinion. I can't give you a Bible verse that necessarily proves that point except the one that I'm reading here. But but my point in in, in mentioning it is that's where the Holy Spirit super intercedes. Now, if you don't pray in other tongues, do not hear what I'm saying here as some kind of uh, um, statement of ineptness on your part or spiritual lack on your part or you're not as spiritually up up to snuff as you ought to be. Just ask the Holy Spirit about it. If, if you don't pray in the Spirit, talk to Him about it. And uh, if if you are a, a hungry for it, I, I'm sure he'll take you there. I think people don't go there sometimes simply because of either bad teaching or, sadly, some indifference and lack of hunger. So if I'm saying anything here that makes you hungry enough to to go after it with the Lord, Jesus said, if 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 uh, uh, you ask Jesus, you ask the Father for a a, a fish, he won't give you a snake. But he'll give you what you ask for. So anyway, and this, this, this super intercession pleading to God with emotional sighs too deep for words, God searches through that prayer 
interprets the longings, understands the desires of both the prayer and the Holy Spirit. He understands the desires because the Holy Spirit is also groaning before God on our behalf in perfect harmony with God's plan for our destiny. Okay? If you have to, I don't want to repeat that. So if you need to rewind it and listen to it, (laughs) rewind it. You know what I'm saying. If you need to listen to it again, just go back and re-listen to it over and over until it soaks in. What does all that mean? Here's what I think it means. I think it means that the Father has set up a network of dynamic supernatural power that is of the pre-fallen world of Adam and Eve, but brought into our world now through the the sacrifice of the of the last Adam, and then by His Spirit birthed it into us, so that now we are groaning and travailing. This this groaning is is has to do with birth pangs. Everywhere it's used in reference to prayer and scripture and all these other scriptures, it has to do with birth pangs. It has to do with giving birth. We'll talk more about that later in other sessions because I I can't get all this in just one time. You know, I'm going to be repeating myself some because it needs to be repeated. We need to keep coming at it from different directions. But anyway, let me, let me keep going. So the Holy Spirit is is untangling the confusion and and he's making order out of chaos and he's bringing together dynamics of circumstances that would have ended up in disaster but are being worked they're being woven they're being transformed even bad things that weren't God's will the Holy Spirit is moving in the midst of that to take uh take it under his con- under his uh power and he works it to produce eventual good now i'm wrestling with this to make sure i don't say it wrong god is not authoring bad things so good things can happen god is taking bad things set in motion by the world the flesh and the devil and he is super interceding to bring those things into conformity with God's ultimate destiny for us. And therefore we know, now verse 28, so we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually being woven together to fit into God's perfect ultimate plan which is bringing good into our lives. For we are his lovers and we have been called to fulfill his design purpose, which is love, joy, peace, among other things. Now, remember Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10? Remember that important verse as it relates to Romans 8, 28? You remember I, I pounded into our heads, Romans 8, 28 cannot be ever quoted on its own. It's got to be quoted in context of the previous verses. And uh, it all points to what Paul says in Ephesians three ten. He says, God's intention is that through the church... God's manifold, remember how we talked about the word manifold? Guys, it's not a part of your car. The many-sided wisdom of God, the many-sided, complicated, uh, refracted light through a diamond is the picture. The the manifold, many-sided, many-colored wisdom of God is demonstrated Who's it demonstrated to? To the principalities and powers in the heavenly realm. And I think that's referring to both holy and unholy principalities and powers. To the holy, it causes them to worship 
and to long to understand and look into the mystery that is redemption. To the unholy, it is rubbing it in their face, so to speak. I don't think God has that attitude. I think that's Clay's attitude. But, but it's, 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 it's giving them a face full of the magnificent wisdom of God that can take horror that the principalities and powers intended and turn it into something good. And that's why I told you last time that uh, the word manifold here is found only once in the Greek translation of the, of the Old Covenant, uh, and that is the story of Joseph. And it's used in reference to Joseph's many-colored coat what did that coat represent? It represented all the good that Joseph's father wanted for him that was ruined by Joseph's jealous brothers, by hatred, jealousy, and godlessness. Uh, and uh, how later on Joseph is raised up to become second in command of all of Egypt and he says to his brothers, who he is embracing in mercy and forgiveness, you meant all this for evil. My many-colored coat was covered in blood, ripped and torn, and became a symbol of hopeless pain and agony for my father uh, when you told him the lie that I was killed by animals. Uh, I went into enslavement because of you, because of what you did. But I've forgiven you, and now you you meant it for evil. I know now, and you know now. God turned it for good. So you have this picture here of something happening supernaturally uh, to weave together a tapestry that will not appear good yet. Remember, Paul started this whole this whole thing. Uh, Paul Paul had to have been somewhat frustrated trying to write this. Well, he wasn't frustrated. What he would do is he would he would reach a point where he couldn't express himself, and that's when he would go off in these glorious statements of uh, how how great and how wide and how glorious and how wonderful. I mean, just take Paul's statements of worship that he explodes with in the middle of certain of his writings. He wasn't frustrated. He just turned it into worship and praise and thanksgiving. Uh, how, how, you know, how great is God's wisdom? How great is, how, his ways are past finding out. Uh, you can't understand them. You can't comprehend them, but you can sure worship with them. And, and Paul does this in places like rat infested stink hole prison cells. <laughs> rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice he writes things like that I mean I'm trying to help myself and help you get as beside ourselves over these truths as Paul was if, if we could just get just a little bit intoxicated on what Paul is He's seen something that is so magnificent that he's trying to find words for it. And so, uh, you know, Romans 8.28 and Ephesians 3.10 are really the same verse. They're just expressed in different, little different contexts. But Paul, remember how he starts Romans 8 here? I'm convinced that any suffering in this present world is less than nothing. Less than nothing. There's a quantum statement, less than nothing compared to the magnitude of the glory that is about to be unveiled. I mean, he, why would he say about to be unveiled? Because he's got a picture of the whole creation standing on tiptoe. You can't stand on tiptoe, with, you know, you're, you're going to fall over. That, that, the idea here is the, the, the whole creation is right on the verge. It's right on the verge. Paul didn't know it was going to be 2,000 years because when it comes to quantum reality, uh, it doesn't operate on the same time scale. But in Paul's thinking, it's already, it's already here. It's already here. That's why Paul could go to prison, get beaten up over and over, get stoned. I don't 
get stone he got stones cast on him. You have to clarify everything nowadays, you know. Paul didn't get stoned. People stoned him. He didn't need to get stoned because if you if you got <laughs> if you got if you got the revelation of this on the level that the Holy Spirit wants you to get it, you you won't need to get stoned. Anyway, um it, the entire universe is standing on tiptoe yearning to see the unveiling of what's coming. And then later on in other places, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he says, the outer man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day while we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so, you know, uh, anyway. Okay, so, so do you see do you see the connection between Romans eight twenty eight and Ephesians three ten? All things are working together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to His purpose. How is that happening? It happens when we pray, but we've been told to pray all the time. This is pray without ceasing. First First Thessalonians chapter five verse seventeen. Pray without ceasing. And I hear people comment, myself included, on what, what does that mean? Well, I love the Passion Translation of that. It, it says, make your whole life a prayer. Make your whole life a prayer. Pray without ceasing. Uh, some people say, well, that's, that's tongues. It's talking about, well, no, it's not tongues. I can't pray in tongues all the time. I do a lot, but I can't pray in tongues all the time. Uh, there's something about praying without ceasing that's going on in inside you all the time, even when you're not conscious of it, even when you're not volitionally yielding to it. It's going on all the time. That's that prayer that Paul is trying to describe in Romans 8, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, that produces the results of 28. Now, I think you can, you can willfully disconnect from the function of that prayer. I know in, in my earlier immature life, when I wanted to sin, I wanted to go serve myself, I was fully aware on a conscious and unconscious level that I was disconnecting from that symphony. I was picking up my violin and walking off the stage out from under the conductor's guidance and I was I was going off on my own and it produced the cacophony of chaotic suffering that you would expect it to produce every time. Uh, and I don't want to dwell on that. I'm just—I think we all know what I'm talking about. I wasn't aware of being disconnected from the flow of that river of symphonic, Holy Spirit-engineered, tapestry-forming, miracle-working uh, activity. I wasn't—I wasn't, I wasn't uh, aware of that happening until I disconnected from it. When I disconnected from it, I became aware that I had disconnected from something that was keeping my life moving in a direction where all things were working together for my good. It was only sin that did it. Any other time, even if I was sleeping, uh, it was working in me. And that was in the early, early, early days. I'm super, super aware of it now. Uh, now I only get disconnected from it when I'm driving in certain places. <laughs> well, there are moments when I feel disconnected. Yeah. Anyway, look, Luke 18, verse 1. Jesus taught his disciples to always pray and never give up. Now, later on, we'll, we'll probably come back to the parable that Jesus tells right after this verse. But I don't want to go to the parable right now. I want to dwell on this verse. Jesus taught his disciples to always pray and never give up. Did you hear that? Did Are you his disciple? Then you need to be hearing that. Jesus taught his disciples to always 
pray. Pray without ceasing. Never disconnect from that matrix of Holy Spirit engineered symphonic weaving of tapestries and diamond colored uh, I want to use the word magical magical, mysterious don't disconnect from that and then I've already quoted 1 Thessalonians 5.17 pray without ceasing make your whole life a prayer James chapter 4 verse 5 this is a, an odd verse and it's hard to translate you read different translations, but, but James chapter 4 verse 5 in the Amplified, the spirit that God breathed into our hearts is a jealous lover who intensely desires to make more and more of us belong to him. Now, we, we belong to him already, but he's, he's jealously desiring to make more and more of us consciously respond to him. Philippians 1 6, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. What is the work he's, he's working in you? This is part of that. Uh, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27, the spirit of a person is the lamp of the Lord, searching out all the inward parts of the deep heart. You are aware, surely, that you are never in touch with yourself very well. You have this tiny little ice cap showing up in what we call the conscious world. And then underneath that is this gigantic, hidden underlayer of unconscious, subconscious uh, activity where David is aware of it, and he says, uh, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth up here on the surface, the meditations of my heart down inside of me when I don't even understand myself. Uh, let the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Keep me from presumptuous sins. Don't let them have dominion over me. Proverbs 4, watch over your heart with all diligence because out of it come the forces that control your life. We all know about those forces that are operating inside of us on an unconscious level that jump up and bite us. And we end up saying sometimes with tears, where did that come from? I'm so sorry. I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I did that. Uh, we all know that. I hope, I hope we all know ourselves at least that, that well. Well, here again, that brings us back to the whole subject of, of praying in other tongues. First Corinthians chapter 14 verse 2. When someone speaks in a tongue, no one can understand him because he's speaking not to people, but to God. And he's speaking intimate, what? Mysteries. He's speaking mysteries in the Spirit. Now, look, lay aside whatever prejudices you may still be wrestling with and just focus on just this verse. Say, Clay, you're always fussing about taking verses out of context. Well, I'm not taking this verse out of context. I'm fully aware that Paul does say in other parts of this chapter that he would not want people to speak in tongues unless there's an interpretation. I understand that. But there are times when it is okay to pick up a verse and just look at the verse itself uh, as long as you don't twist the meaning of it. And I'm not twisting the meaning of it when I point out something about this verse. When Paul is saying, when someone speaks in a tongue, nobody can understand him because he is speaking to God and God is what? Just putting up with the jibber-jabber and wondering when it's going to stop and wondering why this this Christian is wasting his time uh, engaging in a practice that's nothing but jibber-jabber? Well, obviously not. He is speaking to God mysteries. Where have you seen that word before? Was it Ephesians chapter 3? Yes, it was. The mysteries 
Some mysteries are already revealed. Other mysteries are being revealed. But the ultimate mystery, 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. If you read that chapter all the way through to the completion of Paul's thought, it ends with this statement, Then comes the end when the mystery is finished. The book of Revelation refers to it as the the completion of the mystery of God. When we are praying in other tongues, we are engaged in mysteries that are working toward that completion. You are working on the completion of the age when you're praying in the Spirit. Sometimes you might be praying about something in your personal life, or you may be praying about Red China, or you may be praying about any number of other things that you're not consciously aware of. But if this form of prayer was not devastatingly dangerous to the devil. He would not have worked so hard and so long in creating a a shroud of confusion and prejudice against it. Because it is in this kind of prayer that the Holy Spirit is super interceding to bring us into contact with the symphony of prayer going on in the whole world, around the whole world, I'm joining with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven with those who have already gone before me, who are uh, the great cloud of witnesses at the throne of God, and those who are suffering in China and Sudan and Cuba and all sorts of places on the earth. I'm joining with them, and we are doing what? We are letting the Holy Spirit bring us before the throne of the Father, where we are pleading not for the Father to wake up to the fact that there's trouble. That's not it. We don't have to inform him. This is all his idea. We are bringing it before the Father as a governmental action of decreed warfare against those forces that are seeking to hinder the will of God. And God is so smart that he is able to take the evil that the enemy was was working and turn it to make... Joseph's bloody coat turned into a coat of rulership for the saving of many lives and the restoring of many broken relationships and the forgiveness of many sins. Praise be to God. Okay. Now, Paul in one place calls the apostles the theater of the universe. The King James Version says, we have been made a spectacle to the world. But the Greek is actually a theater of the universe. And that's a lot closer to the great mysteries that Paul is trying to help us understand. And so, uh, in Ephesians 3.10, which I've referred to now over and over, hoping you'll, you'll pay attention, um, the principalities and powers are watching all this. Uh, they are they are observing. They don't understand it. They can't withstand it. They can't stop it. They uh, will do anything they can to keep you from praying this way or keep you from being plugged in and staying plugged in to this level of prayer because it is setting in motion forces that give their program a whole lot of trouble and constantly turn what they meant for evil toward the good. But uh, I got to move on. I want st- I could stay on that the rest of our time and I'm sure I'll, I'll, we'll reconnect to it before long. But 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says, we apostles have been made a spectacle to the universe, a a theatrical spectacle to the universe, both to people and to angels. We are fools. We are frail. We are humiliated. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We're poorly clothed and brutally treated. 
But when we are abused, we respond with generating blessing. Remember what we talked about, about the power of generating life, generating good? Paul says, See, this is not some kind of little Sunday schoolish, childish way of not wanting to be mean to people so you you become a, a doormat for them. They're being mean to you, but you're not going to be mean back because you just want to be a spiritual doormat. That's not it. There's a strategy in this. There's there's a a, a, a wisdom in this, a warfare in this. We're we're treated all these terrible ways. And we're hungry and thirsty and all kinds. Our coat, our Joseph coat is covered in blood. But we respond in blessing because that is going to do what Joseph's coat ended up doing, becoming the coat of rulership that saves many lives. I don't think when Paul is speaking about the suffering and the mistreatment of uh, apostles, that that necessarily is limited just to the apostles. Um, the word uh, apostle means the sent ones. And uh, I think this verse applies to every one of us in, in some degree. Obviously, there is a ministry of the apostle that is set apart for a specific purpose. And there are several other apostles mentioned in the New Testament that are not one of the twelve. Paul himself is not one of the original twelve, obviously, and he's an apostle. Uh, many others, I won't get into that right now, but my point is I don't think when you read that verse that you need to limit it just to people in apostolic ministry. I think it, it would have referred to anybody, almost anybody, that was a spectacle, a theater of the universe that the principalities and powers are observing who are considered fools, who are frail, who are humiliated, hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, brutally treated. That that applied to a large portion of the church, if if not the entire church in some some context. But he says, when we are abused, we respond with blessing. Which again, I've already mentioned, harkens back to our original message about we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar set-apart people who show forth, who demonstrate, who, who uh, generate the, the presence and power of God in the face of our mistreatment, our misfortune, our difficulties. And if, if, if we would just meditate on that reality until it really becomes real to us, I mean, for heaven's sakes, every, you know, we can't compare ourselves among ourselves and we, we can't compare ourselves with other suffering portions of the church that are truly suffering in ways we in the West can't comprehend unless we've been there. And yet, your suffering is real. It doesn't, it doesn't help a man with a broken heart or a woman who's been terribly betrayed or a child whose parents are, are ripping their world to pieces. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't diminish their suffering to contemplate the seemingly worse suffering going on in third world countries or going on in in China right now, or uh, various other places, uh, it, it's it's really you know the old saying that we all know that I complained that I had no shoes until I saw the man who had no feet. That's there's wisdom in that, but it can be actually taken too far, so that uh, you don't you don't take your own suffering into the presence of the Lord, and and really deal with it. Uh, I know people that I've ministered to over the years who uh, I say, did you pray about this situation? Well, no, there's so much suffering in the world. I felt like I shouldn't take up God's time. I mean, they didn't say that, but that's what they were saying. I, I shouldn't take up God's time with my little petty suffering. Well, that's just, it's not biblical to think like that. Uh, it's not practical. It's not helpful. 
Paul says, we are the theater of the universe before the eyes of principalities and powers. And then he lists all the suffering. He said, the way we overcome that suffering is by responding with blessing. But you can't respond with blessing unless you really believe that. And quite often, people that I've tried to help over the years, they don't really believe that there is supernatural blessing being generated through them in spite of their suffering or even as a result of their suffering. They don't really believe that because there's no real blessing manifested through them to it. It's it's more of a somber uh, accepting of the painful realities of life and just kind of uh, going on forward like Eeyore, uh, recognizing how bad it is and hoping for the best one day. That's, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul really believed what he was saying when he talked about this present suffering is not even worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed very soon in us, to us, through us, for us. And I think we all, myself included, we don't take those words very seriously. We read them, we take maybe a moment's comfort from them, but we need to really soak in those words until they become real to us. Uh, So... You know, Jesus actually said to Paul at the very beginning of his calling, I'm going to show you what great things you must suffer for my name's sake. And uh, we, we read that like some kind of ominous portent of terrible things to come. Well, Paul didn't react to this revelation of things he must suffer as if he was being given a preview of suffering if you read all of his statements about the suffering that followed, and it's pretty, it's pretty daunting. Uh, you you don't hear one drop of self pity in him, but this to the degree of of suffering, uh, way beyond the degree of suffering, is this incredible revelation of the purposes of God, the kingdom of God, what that's all about. I wish we could find language that wouldn't desecrate the original text, but maybe would hit our ears differently, which would then hit our imagination differently, so that we would get a fresh revelation of the, of these things. We just need to ask the Lord to grant that fresh revelation. First Peter chapter 1 verse 12 says, God revealed to the prophets that their ministry was not for their own benefit, but for yours. And now you have heard these things from those who communicated it to you by the power of the Holy Spirit from heaven. The gospel containing wonderful mysteries which the angels long to look into. Well, we we need to ask the Lord for a fresh revelation of those mysteries because even the angels long to look into them. Heaven forbid that we just treat them like, well, like the way we treat them, like uh, kind of old hat things. Yeah, 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 we've heard it before. God, deliver us from that. Maybe you just need to ask the Holy Spirit right now for a fresh anointing on your heart and on your imagination and on your mind so that you begin to take seriously these these truths. One of the reasons I, I read different translations is because, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm not translation-phobic. I don't have some superstitious idea that the only... Bible God speaks through is the King James Version. It's just incomprehensible to me that anybody could be that unaware of how language works and how the Holy Spirit operates through the written word. But uh, I I read different translations because they they strike my heart differently and give me a a different color. It's part of that manifold wisdom, that many-sided wisdom that uh, 
keeps my heart alive and fresh. Now, look, here we are now at the close of our time together, and I'm just getting to the opening statement I was going to make in this session. And that was going to be on the subject of what happens when we pray for each other? What is going on in the spirit world when we're praying for each other? You know, this whole series started with the question, why do we need to pray for each other? What what good does that do? Uh, are we are we trying to get brownie points or trying to gain political clout so God will be motivated by a number of people who are praying for us? Well, we we addressed that in previous sessions, but I, that that corrects the misconception. But we didn't open up an understanding of the positive. What is going on when we're praying for each other? Well, I'm going to introduce this in the few minutes we've got left. It was going to be the whole message. I'm just going to introduce it into your thinking so that when we come back, Lord willing, in the next session, you'll already have, have it in your, in your mind. There's a verse in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. You may or may not have paid much attention to it, but it, to me it's a very important verse, especially with regards to what we've been talking about concerning praying for each other. Uh, you know the background story. Israel wants a king. They don't want God to be their king. They want kings, uh, a king like the pagan nations. Samuel is pretty frustrated with them about it, but this is what he says to them. God forbid that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Did you hear that? God forbid that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Now, rather than have the idea of Samuel praying to God for the people on the people's behalf, it's it's actually the other way around. Samuel is praying for the people on God's behalf. There's something God has limited himself in being able to do. If you understand what I'm saying, God is able to do anything God wants to do. But what is it God wants to do? God wants his people to come into their identity and their, their future and their, uh, their inheritance as his sons and daughters. And he wants them to do it with a willing, joyful heart, with a loving heart. And so Samuel is standing in the gap between the people's misconceptions and rebellion and sin and God's longing and desire for the people. And so Samuel is saying, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. God has set this up in such a way that intercessory prayer makes the way for God's ultimate purposes to be accomplished while protecting the willful choice-making of human beings because God does not want robots. We've said it over and over. God is not interested in robots. Uh, he, He wants sons and daughters. How can God achieve his ultimate will, which is to fill the universe with love, uh, with his love and family relationships. That's, that's his will. How can God achieve that while still protecting our freedom of choice? Because only freedom of choice can manifest love. Love can only happen in freedom of choice. Anything else is not love, it's programming. Well, I'm, here's the thing. God is smart enough, good enough, and powerful enough to do that. He will accomplish his will. But sadly, for some weird reason, 
I guess it's something in our fallen brokenness that won't be fully healed until the resurrection maybe. But I hear people talk about the will of God and it's almost like they're talking about Adolf Hitler's will to power or, or Nietzsche's concept of the will to power. It's like God's, God's will, God's sovereign will. And they say it in such a way that makes God sound like Hitler. I just said that. Uh, God's, God will get what he wants, but what God wants is a, a universe filled with his glory. And what is his glory? Well, he told Moses what his glory is. Uh, the Lord, the Lord God, full of grace and mercy and forgiving, forgiving those who've sinned and, uh, not letting evil get away with anything. That, that's the glory of God. The, uh, he tells Jeremiah in, in chapter 18 of Jeremiah, uh, I love loving kindness and, 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 and righteousness and justice. That's the glory of God. Well, to hear some people talk, the, the, the will of God is just demonstrating his power. Well, the greatest demonstration of the power of God was the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greatest demonstration of power there is. And so my point in all this reference to 1 Samuel 12 is Samuel is giving us an, an amazing revelation of the function of intercessory prayer as a priest, as a prophet. And in this case, he's actually operating in kingship too. He is saying uh, it, it would be a sin against God's heart for me to give up interceding for you because my intercession is making a way where there is no way for God to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, which is, uh, this is the funny thing, God's will is for your will to become his will by willfully choosing his will, not by programming you or any of the rest of it. So, Philippians 1 verse 19, Paul gives us a little more insight in this. He says, I know that the lavish supply of the Spirit of Jesus and, and your intercession for me will, will bring my eventual deliverance. Did you get that? I know the lavish supply of the Spirit of Jesus and your intercession for me will eventuate in my deliverance, will bring my deliverance. Now, is Paul saying that God can't deliver him without the people's prayers? Well, no. But he, he let's, let's just look at what he is saying. He's saying what he's saying. What he's saying is there is a connection between the the grace and power of Jesus set in motion on Paul's behalf and the intercession of, of God's people. Why did God set it up that way? Well, among other things, he did it so that we are participating in the rulership of the world in order to train us for our eventual rulership of the universe. Romans 15, verse 30, I plead with you because of our union with our Lord Jesus Christ to be partners with me in your prayers to God. My dear brothers and sisters in the faith, with the love we share in the Holy Spirit, fight alongside me in prayer. Ask the Father to deliver me from the danger I face from the unbelievers in Judea. Now, is Paul saying to these people, I really need you all to gang up on God and pray so that maybe God will be pushed into a better place disposition toward me and he might wake up to the fact that I'm facing dangers and he might supernaturally intervene on my behalf. That sounds like we're talking to Zeus, not to the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying what we've been saying all along. Partner with me as I talk to God. You partner with me too because I'm in union with you because I'm in union with Jesus and you're in union with Jesus so we're all in this interconnected tapestry of uh, of prayer uh, s the prayer symphony and so 
as, as, as you pray with me, this opens the way for God to move through our prayers to bring about the protection I need from these evil men and the principalities and powers of darkness that are operating through these evil men will see the many-sided, manifold, complicated wisdom of God being worked into these situations because of your prayers. And he's saying, you're, with, you're literally with me in it. You know, I think about these verses when I'm, sometimes I'm sitting here in my study or early in the mornings when I come in here to pray, I think about the, the suffering church. Sometimes I have pictures in my mind of people that I, I don't know, but I know they're real people. And I, I do what it says in Hebrews 13. I, I, I join with them in their bonds. I enter into their bonds with them somehow in prayer. Uh, and, and we're going to talk a lot more about this in, in our next session. Uh, I probably will repeat myself a great deal in with these verses. I just wanted to leave these concepts in your thinking. Because um, when we come back together, Lord willing, we're going to talk about what is happening when we pray for one another. But I, I need to stop now. Thank you all for listening. Father, please take whatever was born of your spirit and let it take deep root in the hearts and imaginations of your people so that our prayer lives are transformed, not just challenged for a few days till it wears off. Let this have a lasting, eternal effect for good in us so that we become really, truly, permanently changed into people who never disconnect from that prayer symphony, but we are always watching the baton of the conductor, listening for the cues that call us in to play our part. We give you thanks and praise for it. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Holy Father. Amen.